Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Randy, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, man. You're looking great. It's nice to have you back on. Oh, thanks. It's great to be with you, man. Now, when you were on the first couple of times, we talked a lot about the searchers, but rewatching it, there was a few interviews that I don't think we've ever fully dived into. Uh, I wanted to ask about Mark Lane. I mean, how did you get a hold? How did you set it up? I mean, I like that background as not, I wouldn't call myself an interviewer, but I like the background, like meeting and setting up and then recording. There's stuff you can't include in the film about that. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I got to tell you, I was a um, a great admirer of his. So I was really nervous about um, getting in touch with him about the cold call. Um, I've never, I've always been nervous with cold calls, just contacting someone out of the blue. But um, uh, yeah, I just got online and found his email address at his uh, law firm, shot him an email and his assistant got back to me immediately and said that he had moved from New York to Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's just a few hours from where I live. And, uh, and she was like, sure, when do you want to come up? And, you know, he doesn't have an office anymore. He's mostly retired. And so we can just do it in his house. And, uh, and so I got my cinematographer who was living in D.C. at the time. And uh, we met in Charlottesville, went to his house, knocked on the door, and he answered. He was like, welcome, guys. And he was just the most friendly, affable um, guy you'd ever meet. And gave us full access to his house to, you know, set up and get the right shot we wanted. And um, he gave us a great interview. And um, afterwards, we got to walk around his house and look at his books. And that's some of my favorite footage of um, my time with Mark, just looking at his books. And he showed us his Warren Commission. Um, library and uh and of course that great scene my favorite one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is he has gulliver's travels um no the um entire works of the brothers grim right up with the uh warren commission and that's when he says i keep this here just to remind me of that is that is nothing but a fairy tale is there any Thing that he expressed about the assassination that you maybe didn't include in the film but to you privately or any skepticism he might have on some areas that felt like either were dead ends or anything of that sort well you know most researchers um especially the first generation researchers they always they always kind of stayed away from answering the ultimate question of who done it um you know who was who the shooters were who the um mechanics were and who ordered the assassination but you know behind the scenes everyone has an opinion and you know i think marks he he didn't want to tell me straight out who he thought pulled the trigger but you know he he was very confident that e howard hunt you know, from his um, spectator trial, um, that he that he was a key mechanic, and you know, a ton of evidence points to that he was indeed 
um, you know, in charge of payroll and and um, organizing, helping to organize the actual on the ground um, assassination. What about Harold Weisberg? I didn't get to meet Harold Weisberg. Um, he had passed away when I got started, but um, I got some footage from um, David Stark, who had interviewed him, um, a great researcher and filmmaker who I think has moved on from um, hardcore research into the case, but a great guy and was very open with me um, and very generous, generous with me using his footage um, and research. But he he gave a great interview. Um, John Judge, you know, always said that um, when you read Harold Weisberg, it's really dense. So it's kind of like slogging in a canoe. You have to really get into it and just be patient and get through every page because, you know, he was a he was an investigator, um, you know, for uh, like a private eye, he was a hardcore investigator. So, you know, his reporting and his writing was very dense. And so you had to kind of go slow. So if you have ever read any of his work, you know, whitewash, um, you know, his, his archive is just, I mean, it, it, it's kind of what I'm attributing to you with um, interviewing a lot of these researchers that you did for your film is because my generation is disconnected from that and in the moment you might not have known what you were doing but you got a record out there for people to know who these names are and be able to find those names and weisberg has the amount of documentation in his archives that just lets us all be able to look at it and see things that might not be available online on the national archives website or the mary farrell site which i think is just extremely important to understanding the case i mean it's i'm gonna ask you this but it's 60 years coming up here in november so it's, I mean, did you think it would, I mean, do you think he, I would ask how, I don't want to say, do you think he did it, but do you think that there's going to be a uh, answer or maybe some truth that starts to come out? I think we're seeing more now that the media is getting a lot more alleged Oswald or alleged assassin of the president, which I think is a nice change, but they haven't really fully admitted or dive into the questions that we've all been asking for, or the the JFK community has been asking for years. Oh yeah. Well, um, yeah, 60 years. That's crazy. And, uh, I started, um, let's see in, um, my interest peaked with the movie JFK. Um, like so many people in my generation, you know, I don't, I don't know what generation I'm in anymore. Just, the later generations of researchers, but, you know, it grew to the point that in 2001, I made my first trip to, uh, to Dallas. So my first big anniversary was the 40th in 2003. And, uh, and so that was, and I use a lot of that footage in my film, but, you know, when, I realized early on in the 90s that that I thought I knew a lot just by reading reading some books and watching a lot of videos, a lot of Robert Groden's original videos. And uh, once I met, started meeting people, once I met 
um, John Judge and Bill Kelly and T. Carter and and then uh, you know got got deeper and got to meet other researchers. I just realized how little I knew, and if I was going to make an on, honest project, I had to just put my camera aside and really start studying deeply. And uh, and so you know you talked about here we are at the 60th and. There are two things I feel about it. I never, I would never have imagined that the media would have changed their their point of view to call Oswald an alleged assassin. I never thought that would happen. And I doubt seriously a lot of the first and second generation um, researchers thought that that would happen. So we have that. But early on, I don't think anyone would have thought that there would be a JFK Records Act and that it would be that actually it would be supported by the by the Congress and that records started to be released. However, as we know, in 2017, um, uh, late, I believe it was late October 2017, all the records were due to be released. And Trump kicked it down the road once to April 2018, and then he kicked it down to the road to the next president, um, January of what 2020. You know, Biden has now, um, by executive order, um, kicked it back to the intelligence community to decide whether they want to release the documents or not. And that's a huge thing because it's contrary to um, to the law, to the law of the JFK Records Act. So hopefully the next president will will counteract Biden's executive order and the documents will be ordered to be released. Uh, um, you know, the the CIA and other intelligence communities will be ordered to release unredacted in full the remaining documents. And, you know, while little documents have been trickling out, which with each, you know, ordered release, let's not I think it's important for researchers to remember that this is not um, the case of any president releasing documents. This is a case of presidents withholding releases. All documents were due to be released in 2017 by a congressional order, unredacted in full. And you know, well, they've trickled out doc documents over the years since 2017, but that's not good enough. It's uh, and now we're relying on politicians to do the right thing. And regardless of party, what we what we've learned, if anyone's been paying attention, is that politicians can't be trusted to do the right thing. Do you think 
I've, I've heard this get tossed around a lot, but do you think that the 60th anniversary is kind of like the last hurrah? The It's always like in the 20 year, 20 year, 40 year, and then it's like the 60 year. Do you think that will be with this one? Or do you think there'll be a, another year and another year, another year? When does it come to a point where I don't know if it's, they're going to keep going until all documents are released, but is it just going to be a thing that's permanent? I'm just curious for my generation. I, I think I see a lot of people get interested into it, but I think the message gets lost too. As much as researching the assassination can get you lost from the original message of JFK. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot there and you can get lost. I was lost in the beginning. I'm still lost now. Uh, but trying to understand certain sections and areas and just the widespread, I mean, how much did the impact of, understanding the cold war help out with your jfk research well um let me answer the first part of that um i don't think that the case is going away and a lot of researchers especially early researchers will disagree with me on that um after the 30th people thought well it'll trickle away you know after the movie jfk and the documents re were released and people thought, okay, the 40th will be it. And then more information and people keep fighting for little pieces of information. And the 50th came along and a lot of people said, well, this is it. This is it. Um, this is the end. The 60th is here and I don't see signs of people giving up. And I see a lot of signs on young people getting involved. Um, at conferences, you see, you know, it's mostly older people, but you do see young people there and young people getting engaged. And, um, you know, even in my own experience, you know, I, I was a uh, teacher at Duke for a long time. And now I teach at um, Davidson College. And the students are interested when they find out, you know, they do a little deep dive on me, on their professor, and then they find out I made this film. I share it with them and they get interested. And they're like, I had no idea this was even a thing. You know, I'm like, yeah, it, it's a big deal. Um, and so I don't think it's going away. I think. We know too much, and young people are getting involved. Um, you know, just an example, um, your podcast is very popular, and you're doing some great stuff, and, you know, um, you're in. And I don't think you're going anywhere. In fact, I'd put money on that, that you're not going anywhere. Um, but. So I don't think it's going away. And um, I don't think it's just dependent on documents either. I think as the more we learn, the more the better the context will be of what the assassination means for um, America today. And I'm asked to give talks all the time um, on all the assassinations. And um, and, you know, talks to um, uh, Elks Lodges and um, the Rotary Club right around the corner. And, um, 
little filmmaking groups and I'm asked to show the searchers to library groups, show it in the library and tons of people show up to those. And, and so I think there is interest out there and I think people, you know, I believe and a lot of people call me insane, but I believe in people's Cartesian common sense. I do. I think people know bullshit when they see it. And um, and I think the more people learn about the assassination and about every parapolitical event in uh, our history since World War II, especially, people just sense bullshit. And, and um but do they sense it for the right reason, though? That's the real question. You alluded to something, and I think you might get the same vibe I get when I was researching the JFK stuff as well, too. The political stuff gets brought in. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know. I just learned, I think, recently how to identify it when certain people go certain areas. I go, wait, that's a right. Like there's rights and then there's lefts in the JFK community research. And you would think it might just be all the same, but. There's the conservatives and the liberals. A lot of the lone nutters are conservative, but there's a lot of people that share these really strong political beliefs, and it affects their research as well, too. They're not really looking at it with an open, biased thing. I mean, depending if you're right wing, you might say it was, you know, Kennedy wasn't as good as everyone says he was. And then if you're left, you might say that Kennedy was the greatest thing ever. I mean, it was di it's difficult to research in that kind of midst because you don't know how much someone is not looking into something because it doesn't fit their ideology, I would say. I'm curious if you came into that um, as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, early on, it was... Uh, um, well, you also have to remember that I came... I learned about the JFK assassination, and I kind of came into it through COPA, um, the Coalition on Political Assassinations, with John Judge. And John was the most left person I've ever met in my life. But what blew me away early was that um, there would be, I would be sitting in the COPA conference room. Well, I'd be filming, but um, around me would be some of the most right-wing people I'd ever met. And yet we're in the same room listening to the same information and coming basically to the same conclusions. And it really gave me hope that we as a country could work together because in this, in this really um, intense academic environment, there were people on the right and people on the left working together and agreeing and having discussions and maybe disagreeing too. But discussions were being had those late night meals and um you know times at the bar just being at a table and everyone gathered around and and discussing things and i thought it was a really healthy thing and it gave and again it gave me hope in um jfk research and it gave me hope in the fact that people who might have fundamental disagreements could actually talk i think it it's become more pronounced um, in by 2023, but I still think this is the one time, the one 
area of research, one area of academic study that people can have honest discussions. Um, one of my good friends is Grover Proctor, um, who um, is the foremost researcher on the Raleigh call. And uh, he's um, a very conservative. I consider myself kind of an old school liberal. I don't know where I stand anymore. Um, a Kennedy liberal. But we meet for, for lunch at least once a month. And he's one of my closest friends. And um, we have the best discussions. And But we also come to our discussions with mutual respect and and in good faith you know we're not neither of us are trying to win we're just trying to have an honest discussion and i do see that if you go to conferences today um i'll be there in a couple of weeks and they're conservatives and liberals and um you know sitting next to each other listening to the same information and having discussions. There's never a heated discussion or, you know, people disrespecting each other. Very rarely, I think, once. I've seen that once in all my years of going to conferences. So, you know, don't, I wouldn't believe people, those people who say that we're becoming, that the polarization of the political climate in the U.S. in general is dividing the research community. I don't I, buy it. I've noticed it just through talking with so many people from different political spectrums that they'll talk or they'll mention things in maybe a different way. I've heard it before, um, specifically the Vietnam War. For the longest time, I was hearing Kennedy was going to pull out of the Vietnam War. And I think there's I think there's evidence on both sides, to be honest with you. Um if you look at just the troop involvement, then sure, you can say that he might not have been pulling out. But if you look at the things in his mindset back then and the other activities that he was doing and the statements that he did make, I think that's ample evidence to show that he was going to pull out of Vietnam. But I've had that discussion where I've seen two perspectives of that. It's similar to the mob and then the military industrial complex thing, which, I mean, it makes the whole case kind of messy in the first place, which, I mean, I'd ask you the question, why should younger generations even care in the first place? I mean, it's not an easy if you talk about lone nutter or conspiracy, you know, that entering that field, there's a, a lot of words get tossed around by both sides to each other it makes it difficult if you don't know what you're talking about. So I'm just curious, how does a younger generation, how, why, why, why should they get invested into the Kennedy assassination and probably it will consume their whole life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if, if they do what we've done, it will consume their whole life. <laughs> But, um, but, you know, when I talk to a class, um, I give a, a talk at a university, it was a, a course on conspiracy. And they, um, the professor brought me in and they watched the searchers and then we discussed it. And I think, you know, I, the, the documents can, and I think are our best route to learning the truth behind the assassination. But more, moreover, it shows what a, a government in crisis, how it reacted. And we can learn a lot from that. So 
I always go back to the document. And so in that conspiracy class, that you know, they're all 18, 19, 20-year-olds. I just go back to the um the CIA psychological operations memo, um, what is it, 1035-960, that discussed countering criticism of the Warren report. And I know you've talked about this this document many times, but that document is was the beginning of the entomology of conspiracy and theory being joined at the hip. So, um, you know, when when kids learn that when that term is thrown around today, conspiracy theorist, conspiracy theory, that was a term invented by the CIA Psychological Operations Unit to counter criticism of the Warren report. And that's the that's a direct link from the assassination of Kennedy to today. If you question anything in contemporary political American society, you're called a conspiracy theorist. That's a direct link to the events of November 22nd, 63. Did you notice that any fellow academics don't really touch the Kennedy subject that much? I heard it from uh, Monica Wiesack. She mentioned that talking about the Kennedy assassination or talking about Kennedy's presidency eventually leads to that question of the Kennedy assassination. And then that goes in the conspiracy thing. And a lot of academics, like I've had skeptics tell me that I'm a conspiracy theorist. And I was like, why am I? And they'd be like, well, wh why do you think you are? I was like, well, I don't think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but if I research MK Ultra and known government projects, like, well, those aren't conspiracies. They're like, well, yeah, they are because they're so baffable to people that they can't even believe it. So I'm curious what your fellow academics or have you noticed the academic community kind of stay away from? Like we teach the MLK assassination, but we don't really study the JFK assassination with a microscope. Maybe in certain schools they do. But in my school, they didn't. And I'm sure in other people that might be listening schools, they probably don't. Yeah, at, at large, you know, at at the quote unquote respected colleges you know, and universities, academics will not go near it at all. It's a non-starter. Um, and, you know, they like even in that conspiracy class, it wasn't, you know, an elective class. Um, at a, a major university on Tobacco Road right here in North Carolina. But uh, even in that conspiracy class, he wrapped up, even acknowledging everything in the film, that in my film, that was documented, supported by, document, by documentation. You know, I had the people involved actually speaking about their own experiences. Even then, um, he wrapped up with the Warren Commission report and their final conclusions that, you know, why would they lie? Why would they lie? Why would they lie? This was, a, you know, a panel of the most respected men in America. And so he wrapped up the entire course with supporting the Warren Commission report. But the summary of their findings, it states it right there. It says, based on the evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald was the assassin, was the uh, lone assassin, 
The commission found evidence to support their final conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. I was like, yeah, but they didn't look for a conspiracy. It's right there. They state it in there. It's on the National Archives website. You can go to the Warren Commission. You can read it. The summary of their conclusions. They're not. I mean, that is their conclusion, but they never looked for conspiracy. So the conspiracy evidence is right there in their own writing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I begin my film with the fact that they released all of the um, investigations and the supporting documents in the Warren report. You know, the first is 888 pages, and that's their final report. But the rest of the volumes are the supporting evidence, how they came to that conclusion. And, you know, uh, I forget, maybe it was Penn Jones or Weisberg, but um, the only way you can believe the Warren report is by not reading the supporting documents. Because if you read the supporting documents, it totally contradicts um, the the 888 page report. And um, and so in in this final discussion, and I was present for it, he didn't involve me much. I just got to sit in. But um, he did ask me if I had anything else to add. And so I said, well, in the report, um, you know, one of the major things is that um, um, Oswald was accused of killing Tippett and Officer Tippett on the street. And the major witness was Helen Markham. And that's who they hung the Tippett murder. Um, they hung it on Oswald based on her on her um, eyewitness testimony. And so when you go into the, um, can I read just a little bit of that to you? Yeah, because yes, it's insane. I, I, th I think at one point she had her hands covering her face or something like that. And she's talked about being able to describe them. Yeah. And so. All you have to do is read the testimony of Helen Markham to the Warren report. And so, um, so she's talking about the line. He's asking, um, the lawyer Ball is asking Markham about the lineup that she um, picked, was supposedly, supposedly picked Oswald out of. And he says, did you see any television? And she says, I did not. Did a police officer say anything to you before you went in there into the room, um, the lineup room, before you went in there to tell you, no, sir, that he thought we had the right man or something like that of that sort, anything like that? No, sir. No statement like that? No, sir. Did anybody tell you that the man you were looking for would be in a certain position in the lineup or anything like that? No, sir. So this is where it gets weird. Now, when you went into the room, you looked these people over, these four men? Yes, sir. Did you recognize anyone in the lineup? No, sir. That's the key testimony to tie Oswald to um, the Tippett murder. Um, 
Did you recognize anyone in the lineup? No, sir. You did not? Did you see anybody? I have asked you that question before. Did you recognize anybody from their face? From their face? No. Did you identify anybody in these four people? I didn't know anybody. I know you didn't know anybody, but did anybody in that lineup look like anybody you had seen before? No. Not one of the four? Not any of them. Not one of them. No one of all four? No, sir. That's crazy. And then he twists. This is the chief investigator interviewing the main witness of the Tippett murder. And then he says, was there a number two man in there? <laughs> and and uh, she says, number two is the one I picked. And he says, well, I thought you had just told me you hadn't. I thought you wanted me to describe their clothing. No, I wanted to know if that day when you were in there, if you saw anyone in there. No, sir, I didn't. That's in the supporting documents. That's Helen Markham, the chief witness tying Oswald to the murder, unable to pick him out of a lineup. And as you can see, the investigator Ball is doing everything he can to get her to say she identified the witness. So that's that's just one example of the craziness that's in the supporting documents in the Warren report. And that's why Penn Jones said the only way you can believe it, believe the Warren report, is if you don't read the documents, the supporting volumes. Now, would that be your best point to people to get them to understand or look into the JFK case? Or do you have any others that you feel like if you were going to just try and get somebody to the level of conspiracy or just look into the JFK thing, what would be one of your best points? Well, you know, pointing out things like that is always helpful because it's, you know, going right to the showing of the evidence. Showing literally showing the evidence. And then um, another thing I share is my father's experience. Um, and I've shared, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but in, in a nutshell, he was uh, um, during the assassination, he was stationed, he was a fighter, a fighter pilot, um, Air Force fighter pilot, and he was part of of the fighter interceptor squadrons um, flying up and down the east-west German border, shadowing a Soviet MiG, and they would do this dance, and then they would peel off and another set of fighters would go. And that was the front line of the Cold War, um, the east-west German border. And so I was born in Germany um, during that time. And uh, and my dad would say, if a German farted, they would be scrambled. If anything happened, they would be scrambled. So the assassination attempt on de Gaulle, they were scrambled. They were in the air. You know, of course, the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, they were scrambled. They were in the air. But... He didn't find out about 
um, the assassination of of Kennedy until a serviceman and just an airman ran into the officers club where he and my mom were eating and said, did you hear? Did you hear? They were like, no, they were at dinner. And uh, he said, the president's been shot. They weren't scrambled. They weren't in the air. And to people like my dad, who had been in World War II when he was 17, who had served in Korea, then was serving in the Cold War, all those old timers, all those guys knew that something up, something was up. That, you know, at that level, protocol doesn't break down. It just doesn't. Um, but it did that day. And that's um, what my dad told me is that that was the only time in all of his years in the Air Force that protocol broke down, that they weren't scrambled. And that jives with the reports of the code books um, being pulled from nuclear planes from the code book and and um air force one the day of the assassination being um being pulled um so and the next step of course and this was what my father what my dad asked is that you know that order to not scramble them can only come from one place and that's the commander of the Air Force and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, that was protocol. So, um, and, you know, that's my, my personal story. It comes from my dad. And that's in line with other protocol that was ordered to stand down. You know, the, what the, um, um, uh, the base in in Texas, I, uh, it, the name escapes me, but everyone knows that you know the military support that that always accompanied the president, especially in in difficult places like Texas for for the president. Um, the military is always called up for support for security support, but that day it was. They were told to stand down. Um, I think it was Colonel Reich who was uh, who expressed his his disagreement, um, extreme disagreement with that policy. But he was told to stand down, and that can only come from the Pentagon. There was a there was another code book that was missing, a White House code book from one of the planes that Kennedy's cabinet members were all on with Dean Rusk. Um, so the, the Secret Service and they all had to talk on open channels, so they really couldn't discuss. They didn't even know the president um, died until they got back to, I want to say Dallas, because they were going from Japan to Honolulu. Or no, they turned around and went to Honolulu. But um, if you look at like that actual statement of what was being sent over the telewire, that since they had to talk on open channels, which means anybody could have listened in and hear what was going on, they stated we're coming back from Tokyo or over the Pacific and we're heading to Honolulu. Um, and the person asked, can you repeat that? I didn't catch it. And they repeated it again. 
and the transcript shows the full thing. So they basically had to repeat everything like two to three times. And I was like, that's a huge security risk right there. And eventually, um, I think Dean Rusk was concerned because a person came on the mic and they called themselves Stranger. And they were trying to figure out who this person was. So they had to keep radio chatter eventually to a minimum because they were afraid people would be listening in. But I was like, that's a huge security risk. If someone set that up or anything of that sort, they could have all went down over the Pacific, all of Kennedy's cabinet members. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so... I guess just ham ham radio operators could just listen in. Uh, yeah, that's what uh, Gary Schoner said when I spoke with him. And I, I actually looked it up and saw the documentation for it. So, yeah, anybody that had a ham radio or something like that could hear all the things that were going on between that plane and the situation room, which was um, communicating back and forth. Well, that that's in line. And Gary's an excellent researcher, by the way. Um, which it's not necessarily super conspiratorial, but it is suspicious as, you know, why was that not there? You know, there's these questions that come up in the Kennedy assassination, which I feel like it's where the disconnect happens with people where immediately their eyes start to roll when because they start going, oh, conspiracy. And they start rolling. I was like, well, I can get you there, but we got to understand our roots a little bit, too, to past events that have been exposed. You know, the church committee is a great example of getting people to the level of conspiracy, but also looking at things in the assassination where testimonies or leads were not pursued, investigations were not done. And then they they ask, well, what happened next? It's like, we don't know. You know, out of the Warren Commission, they interviewed 500 and something people on the Warren Commission. But then you look and see who was there, and it was family members of Lee Oswald, Jack Ruby Associates, and things of the sort, people that weren't in Dealey Plaza. So you can't tell me you interviewed witnesses when all the people you interviewed weren't even in Dealey Plaza when the shots rang out. But that's just – that's basic stuff that can get people to start raising their eyebrows. But I feel like everything like a brain missing, I, it's it's real, and it's – you know, got documents to support it, but the public just tunes out. That's why it makes it very difficult when you're trying to describe it as someone who hasn't researched it. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, that one of the things I say to people is that there is no real smoking gun document. Um, we have a ton of documents that point to Oswald um, being involved with the CIA and the FBI. Um, military intelligence. We have so many oddities that never had, they just never happened, like the brain going missing. And, you know, you can't say that, um, you know, it's difficult to tell someone, you know, just a lay person, that that means that there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. But what you can say is that in just any normal case, this, the Smith death, the brain never goes missing. It just doesn't. Um, in any murder case, the forensic evidence isn't tampered with. In the death of a president of the United States, everyone thought that the best forensic pathologists in the world would be called in, but they weren't. Um, Cyril Wecht tells a great story that his, um, friends of his and himself 
they all got ready. Um, the best forensic pathologists in the country, the minute they heard that he was he had been killed, they were packing their bags, just waiting on the call to go to Dallas or when he was going to D.C. to go to D.C. to perform the autopsy. Um, but none of them were called and they got Boswell and Humes in there. Um, and, you know, it was a botched job. It was a controlled autopsy. But it's things like that that you you can't say necessarily this is proof of a conspiracy, but it's proof of protocol breaking down at virtually every single level. And the next question one has to ask is why? Why would protocol break down? And the only answer to that is that the people in charge of of um, maintaining that protocol ordered the protocol to not be followed. The next question is why? So you have to take people on that path. Unfortunately, there's no major smoking gun document outlining everything. It just doesn't exist. But what we do have is the pure breakdown. Um, we can illustrate the breakdown of virtually every bit of protocol that would ever happen in any murder case or any military case or military action. And like in my dad's case, the president was was assassinated supposedly by a Russian sympathizer and he wasn't scrambled. He wasn't, they, they never went in the air. Do you believe Oswald was an FBI informant? Um, I, you know, I think there's documentation supporting that he was. Um, but again, until we get more documentation out, um, and I know a lot of the the research community is split on that. Um, but we do now have a really good indication that he was, in fact, a CIA asset. So, you know, it. I think that's the proof with the U2, the U2 stuff. But when John Fain interviewed Oswald when he returned from Russia after denouncing his U.S. citizenship, they talked for like two hours in his car. And um, in the Warren Commission statement that John Fain gave, he mentioned that like they asked Oswald, what would you say to him when he came back? And we we're like, he was like, we're more concerned about his wife if she had any connections. And I think that was in the recent documents it has been released in the past was about Marina being a swallow, which is a girl that was meant to pick up these white Caucasian men that came over, go back to the U S and send secrets back to the KGB. That's that. I was a lot of their concern. He said was a lot of their talk was about Marina. If she had any contact with anybody with the KGB, um, Oswald said no, but he'll let John Fain know. And then they asked if Oswald was violent, if he was, uh, you know, everything the Warren Commission paints him out to be. And John Fain said, no, he goes, I wouldn't have closed my investigation and retired if he was, which goes, well, they reopened it because Hostie then got attracted to Oswald. So like there's questions right there for me, like 
maybe that was when he became an FBI informant or something, because I, it's the only way I can see him paying back all that money in such a short amount of time. I know he borrowed some from his mother and things of that sort, but he went from paying $20 and $15, which is a lot back then, especially with someone with a baby and no job. Um, and then he ends up paying $200 and then $100. And I'm like, where is he getting something had to change in his life? And I think it might have been that interview, but that's just hypothetical speculation. The only thing I can prove is just the stuff that they talked about, which admonisters or kind of brings out a different character of Oswald than the Warren Commission painted. And that's in their own volumes. Yeah. And for a lot of this stuff, like you just said, we the best we can do is informed speculation. You know, um, we can't prove it, but. You know, we can come up with a plausible scenario. But, um, you know, one thing that about Oswald in Russia that's interesting, um, when Boris Yeltsin, um, after the fall of the wall, the fall of the, the collapse of the Soviet empire, um, and Boris Yeltsin became president, um, you know, he gave um, a mountain of uh, JFK assassination documents that the Soviet Union had collected, and he gave it to President Clinton. And um, while there's no smoking gun in those documents, the mo one of the most interesting things is that is how high the um, the documents on Oswald as a defector went, and they went all the way up to Khrushchev's desk. And no other U.S. serviceman or um, U.S. defector had their documents go all the way up to the desk of the premier. So you know that's a that's a big that's a that's a big deal. Um, then while it's not a smoking gun, why would he be the, be the defector that went all the way up? They knew something about him. They knew something. I mean, clearly they knew something, but the supporting documents you know, of what they what they suspected and why the documents, the reports on him went all the way up to Khrushchev. There are no supporting documents that I've come across in those Soviet in that Soviet dump that uh, Yeltsin gave Clinton. Isn't that interesting? Makes you think. Yeah, they yeah. had Robert Webster over there. They could have got. Mm -hmm. He was another defector. But as as far as I know, the reports on him didn't go all the way up to the premier. Yeah, that's what makes it really suspicious. Like I can explain the loan department giving Oswald the money to come back just because he can be seen as an embarrassment uh, to the nation because he is making a scene in the embassy. But a lot of that stuff, like I don't, there's just unanswered questions like his diary that he allegedly wrote in um, Russia. Uh, I guess I don't, it just it doesn't make sense. He apparently wrote it over a couple of weeks, but handwritten like note experts have looked at it and said this had to be written in like two days. It's not over a couple of weeks while he was staying here. He talks about trumpets blaring and he's writing poems in Russian and it just doesn't make sense. It does not fit 
who Oswald was. And I think only Walt Brown figured this out, which you got a little bit of Walt Brown on your searchers film, but um, it, it was just Walt Brown said like it's there's only a percentage of Americans that know how to even or percentage of the population that can write perfect Russian like that. So Oswald being in that percentage doesn't make sense. And I think that's where you see a lot of the Warren Commission that tried to really bolster up his Russian claims on things, making them painting them with the communist brush to really kind of de-empathize or you know from the American public. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, I wanted to ask, though, because we I asked this before, but about the Cold War, not just the Cold War, but other political assassinations, things that have occurred that obviously have a lot of. It brings you to a level of conspiracy when you just look at like if you just say the Kennedy assassination was a conspiracy and you mention a couple of things, they'll go, OK, and they'll roll their eyes. But if you mention how other political assassinations like there's not that many lone nuts in history you know, without a purpose or something behind it. And also the suspicious stuff of evidence and documentation in RFK and JFK's case had been destroyed. Like there's parallels that you see. And I think that gets people to the discussion, but how much of that knowledge of researching other political assassinations and knowing more about things that have been exposed through government investigations on corruption in our agencies really opened you up to diving deeper into the JFK stuff? Oh, yeah. Well, the JFK stuff got me involved in in other other assassinations, and you know one one of the crazy things is that, that or for me early on, you see the same names um, popping up everywhere. Howard so, Hunt. <laughs> Howard Hunt, like the direct link to Watergate um, from the JFK assassination is crazy and i couldn't believe i would when i you know was given um, by researchers books to read you know they they'd say you haven't read these books oh go to it young man and then you see the same names and all the way up to um what was it the doorman at um not the same not the same jose padermo not the same guy Oh, at the doorman at uh, not the same guy. At John Lennon. Yeah, when I researched the John Lennon, Mark, uh, not Mark Chapman, uh, David Whelan is. If you look his name up, he's trending with the two shooters and John Lennon. He did a documentary back in the day about it. He told me it wasn't the same one. Um, they weren't related or anything. So it just happened to be a circumstance thing. But you mentioned the Watergate stuff, and I've had Barry Jones on here. He's someone you should talk to. He's, he's it's Daniel P. Sheehan's the E-40 team, the Nixon hit squad. There's a lot of evidence to support that. It's probably the, out of all the theories, that's the one that has the most breakdown connections. You know, we have St. John Hunt's uh, video of Howard Hunt saying it. Um, there was even claims and articles calling Howard Hunt one of the three tramps. And they even put up magazines and newspaper articles about it. He sued and won the first one. And then... I, I think it was the second one. It was li libel, and he ended up losing that one. And because there's a lot of evidence to support that's him in that photograph that they took. It's nobody else, but it's that hit squad of um, what is it? William Harvey, Howard Hunt, uh, David Atlee Phillips, right. all these people. Frank Sturgis, yeah, right from Watergate. And then you see, um, 
Well, after, you know, it's, it's interesting in my own, in my own uh, experience that um, I would always be asked, I was always asked to give little talks, like I said before, uh, about the JFK assassination. And then the Rotary Club will, would say, do you know anything about the RFK assassination? And I'd, I'd say, I, I do. And so I put together a, you know, I, I call these, these talks the JFK 101, MLK 101, RFK 101, just intro level discussions about the evidence and uh, um, and the official reports and then the flaws in the official reports and what we've learned since. And, and it's, it's kind of weird. I've kind of become that intro level guy. Um, and it's a, it's a position I'm really, uh, I love, and I'm, I'm proud that at least there's a role for me beyond just my filmmaking that, that I can just clue people in to the fact that there's more to the story than you've ever been told. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, one of the really weird things is that, um, I don't know if I've told you about this, but I gave a talk at my local library and, um, you know, I had some, um, it was really wild. It's, um, I was given a, I was asked to give a little talk at, you know, the South Regional Library right here in Durham. And I had, they had arranged just a small conference room for me. But when I got there, they said, oh, no, you're in the big room. Um, hundreds of people, a hundred people have shown up and we had to give you the big room. So, you know, I went where they um, usually put the voting machines, you know, and it's a big, big space. And it's filled with people who had come, read about just in the local library news, you know, newspaper, um, you know, the handout they give you when you check out a book, upcoming events. And uh, and so I gave gave my talk and it was the JFK 101. I talk about documents, talk about what what we've learned since 63 and what we've learned through the new releases and everything else. But in the back of the room, um, there were two guys in suits. And they were, it was a really, they just stuck out like sore thumbs. And then they, after um, the talk, they, um, they approached me while I was wrapping all the cables and stuff and said that they were from the, um, Office of General Counsel from the National Archives, and they had driven down from D.C. for my talk, from College Park, Maryland, uh, for my talk. And let me share this with you. Because I keep their card. I remember in, you saying that. I just don't think you've ever showed it before. Yep. Office of General Counsel. I keep that in my wallet just to remind me that, my goodness, they are watching us. I mean, why else would would they have come down 
from DC for just a basic JFK talk at a local regional branch of the library. And how did they even find out about it? It's not like I posted it on the net or anyone posted it on the net other than just a local library events page. So, you know, that that was wild to me. That was wild. And I keep that in my wallet just to remind myself that they actually are watching us. So if they care about that, you know, they're watching your show. I noticed it with the, I noticed it with the um assa- if you talk about the Kennedy assassination, the YouTube shorts do not trend at all. Um, but I'll put up something like I, I put up all of Monica Wiesack's clips, and I've only done six so far when recording this. Just about Kennedy's speech, um, peace speech, Kennedy's uh, versus Wall Street, Kennedy versus or Kennedy with the working man, whereas a lot of his focus was on the working class individuals. Um, JFK and the media trending. I mean, immediately they get up to like 500 views, 600 views, and within an hour. But then all the assassination stuff, things with the code book. One view, two views. I'm like, you know, they're there. People can watch them. They're clickable to watch, but it's just not going to get tossed up in the algorithm, which um, I know you're making a second film and we talked a little bit about it off air. I know you mentioned talk about the media a little bit, but I'm interested in your thoughts on the media coming from a filmmaker's perspective that you have. Obviously, you see that there's four films coming out about the assassination this year, um, all around the 60th. There's the History Channel, which my buddy told me he's like, that's the biggest piece of shit, right? I was like, yeah, that's the that'll be following the official narrative, probably. Um, then the Parkland Doctors one, and then there's another film by David Mamet, and I think there's another one that just got released as well, too, that'll be coming out um for the 60th. So it brings hope that there's it's still in the culture. Uh, But from a media perspective, looking at just the media in general, I mean, we'll talk about the searchers, too, as much as you're willing to express that you are making a second film, which I'm excited for already. Uh, But it's there's not a lot that really dives into the conspiracy aspect of things. And I know a lot of stuff that does it does go into it very either sophisticatedly or light touches it. And I don't know what the balance is between those because it seems like, I mean, I'm not dismissing anybody's work on it because I think it's important, but somehow I, I want to do more than just get the public talking about it. I want to get them engaged in doing something about it as well, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the big point of this follow up to the searchers is um, to draw the connections from November 22nd, 63 to now and why does it matter now um and to do that you have to hit all of the assassinations leading um from um medgar evers in what 61 all the way to fred hampton in 69 and then the character assassinations and other assassinations of you know ted kennedy at chappaquiddick um, and I know you've done shows on that, which are really fascinating. Well, I've done more on the Fred Hampton assassination. If you want Jeffrey Hobbs number, let me know. I'll send it to you. He's uh part of the people's law, people's law office that represented Fred, Fred's family. He was there, walked through Fred's apartment when all those shots were going down. I know you might not go into depth on all you'd probably give, you know, a good summary conclusion to support the main 
theme of the movie. But no, that one's a rough one too. I point people towards, but more people believe that's a conspiracy than they believe the JFK stuff. But I'm like, is it the president? The that the whole thing that gets people disconnected from conspiracy. Well, you know what, Americans are. While I believe in our common, our collective common sense, we and it's and we're led by the the mainstream media, and um, there are a lot of great projects on Operation Mockingbird, and the failure of, um, and just the the rough failure of the media in reporting the um, on the Kennedy assassination and other assassinations, but we in America tend to believe in conspiracies in every aspect of life, um, religion, every institution of contemporary American life, uh, um, religion, sports, business, um, politics even, except where it gets to power politics and conspiracies involving power politics, which are assassinations, um, just can't possibly exist in the United States. We, but we, we believe in, in assassinations and conspiracies and power politics in other countries around the world. You know, um, we believe that political assassinations have put people in power all over the world in every other country except the United States. And so, you know, that's a place that, you know, as a researcher, I have to, I tend to approach people in that regard, that conspiracies exist on every level, and they also exist in the United States on the level of power politics. And and now you don't have to necessarily assassinate someone um, by killing them. You can assassinate their character. Um, we're seeing that with, you know, in just current day politics. People are being assassinated. Um, you know, the uh, who who know things, they're being assassinated. The, uh, I forgot the name of the journalist. Um, that sped into the not wall. Gary Webb, that sped into but, the wall uh, at like a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. yeah, Michael Hastings. Michael Hastings, a great, great example of that. I, I think any cursory examination of that case um, would state that people would conclude that yeah, he was he was a victim of political assassination. If it goes against big business interests, like the pharmaceutical companies or things of that sort, people will believe it. For some reason, the politics, just people don't believe people will be killed over something political or a Clinton kill list, for instance. There is one person that is suspicious that we all know was killed by somebody, but we blame the Russian government. It was the guy who made the water-powered car or had the idea for the water-powered car. There's been two. They both died. But one of them died at a Cracker Barrel, and he ordered some type of tea. I know it's the worst place to die, but um, he ordered a tea, and he was meeting with two Russian individuals, and that is in the official description. Um, he ran outside, 
and started saying that they got me and he died right there and they think that he was poisoned. But since it's Russians, people just go, oh, it was definitely that's believable. I'm like, well, hold on a second. Our own government does that all the time. And it seems like we're just I mean, look at the assassination plots on Castro as an example, which even I don't know if you saw this when the new documents got released. Northwoods and all that was being called a conspiracy. Like those are those are fake documents. I started seeing that pop up and I was like, wait a minute. I thought that was part of our history. And we acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really interesting point. That that was, you know, that was part of the JFK Records Act declassification. That was a document that came out of the JFK Records Act that came from the National Archives, that came from um, suppressed documents. And now people are are uh, actually like. There's no trusted news source any, anymore, but news sources are saying that that was that. Northwoods is a conspiracy that it doesn't exist. So, and that's one of the things with with the failure of our media now, and it's just um, they're so easily proven false um, and proven to be liars, yet no one's calling them out, and except. Except us, except researchers and people who are intellectually honest. Um, Kennedy did. But, you know, um, go ahead. Kennedy did. He started doing TV press conferences and a lot of his advisors warned him of doing it uh, because in case he messes up or he's not able to answer something. Uh, but he believed that uh, newspaper reporting, um, I think he said, what, 90 percent of them agree with my politics, but then the 90 percent of the articles that they write are just hit pieces on my administration. Um, but he believed that talking through the format of the television was a better format because newspaper journalism was not doing it correctly. Uh, they were clipping off bits and pieces, um, which he felt like he should. I think he did the most. He did 64 TV interviews, which is one every week. No, yeah, no, it's 52 weeks in a year. No, I think th before he was killed, yeah, he did one every week. So up until he was killed, so he had to be doing it for almost a little bit over a year. Um, he was doing those TV conferences, but that was a main thing of him. He believed that, you know, spur of the moment, if he didn't know something, he'd say, I'll speak to my advisors about it. But he believed that was the best way. And that's what increased his approval rating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was an amazing communicator, and and uh, while he at sometimes had an adversarial relationship with the media, he made himself available. And you know, he most of his close friends were um, conservatives with whom he disagreed, and many of them were um, conservatives in the media with whom he disagreed. But he would stand up and take questions from him and uh, from them. And we just don't necessarily have that anymore, unfortunately. And I think that's another thing that's changed dramatically since 63. Um, we, it's just part of our, our society that's, that's all but gone. But one of our jobs as, as researchers and as communicators um, 
in this field is to refute that stuff and just let people know um, that there is a different story, that there's more to the story than what they've been told. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned that people, people will come up and, and like what Kennedy said, 90% will agree with him, but 90% of the articles, you know, um, refute him or critical of him. And I've had um, professors of mine who, who we get in discussions and, or, you know, colleagues of mine at universities. And we, I ask them, why do you not bring up controversial topics like, you know, where there are real questions like the Kennedy assassination, like the MLK assassination, like 9-11, like the anthrax attacks after 9-11, like um, the deep conspiracies um, between all of our foreign wars. And they say, well, it's, I have, I like my tenure. And, you know, where, how, how else am I going to have financial security if I start bringing those topics up? And, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from. I disagree, but I understand where they're coming from. Um, it's intellectually dishonest and very little um, backbone involved, but um, and it's the same way with contemporary journalism. They're scared to bring up controversial topics, you know, and you know, it sucks. People got to be put in a position where they have to risk their tenure or risk their career. Um, I've talked to a lot of Fox and News, Fox News and CNN correspondents on the show, and they all talk about, well, it's just messes. I mean, you're going to write a slam piece or something about a company or something, and they have a business relationship with your media outlet. It's in your best interest not to write that slam piece. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, do, obviously, I probably believe we live in more of the illusion of democracy and illusion of freedom than what we actually have. I think we're free compared to other countries, but I don't think this is a comparative issue. I think this is something you have to look at what we have as Americans that was given to us in our constitutional rights and how easily that can be manipulated or twisted. I mean, the intelligence agency raided my buddy's house and he was on Fox News talking about it. They written massive articles about it all because he was just flying drones around the area of Area 51. And he had a website dedicated to studying these cool YouTube bombers. And uh, yeah, he's he was on to talk about his experience and they can do that to any American. They just consider you a national security issue. Same thing they do with a document that they just retract and you'll never see it again as a national security issue. You know, defining terms is very important for our government to start doing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And look, I took those I took it as a scare ta tactic when those guys came to my little talk at my library, my local library. Um, it, you know, it went late at night when I'm driving down the road and um, you think to yourself, well, if they came, they literally, like, think about the mechanics of that. They, 
were ordered to go by someone. They had to go to the motor pool, check out a car, drive to Durham, find the library, sit through an hour and a half for two hour talk, get in their car, drive all the way back, check it in the motor pool and go home. That's a big commitment for a schmuck like me. You know what I mean? And so if I started to do really amazing work in the uh, in uh, in research in other topics that are more threatening to the powers that be in contemporary society. I mean, look what they did to Michael Hastings. And I mean, he was he was just going after, you know, what a, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs um, or former general. But he was taken out, man. And, you know, when these little things start happening, it's hard not to start thinking about the natural progression of things. Um, you know, Cyril Wecht is a great example. The most respected forensic pathologist in the world. And they still raided his house and took all his JFK documents and almost bankrupted him over a meaningless, small discrepancy in, I think, in phone records from his office that turned out to be nothing. And if that can happen to someone like him, you know, the rest of us should just be on edge because but we can't live our lives scared. And, you know, John Judge would say to me, um, you know, I hope they're watching me. Maybe they'll learn something. And so maybe that's what we need to take from, from this. If we are indeed being observed and being recorded and reports are being written behind the scenes, maybe... Um, that's what we should take from all of this that, you know, John, John's words, maybe they'll learn something. Man, I would hate to be that maybe guy. That's have to laugh about it. I will say, I would hate to be the guy that's monitoring me. That's kind of boring. It That's a boring shift, man. I don't do much. I could tell you that. No, no, you, you are wrong, my friend, because you're, you're bringing on, um, people from all different areas of research and, um, yeah, I, I've um, really been loving your show. You bring on people from a wide range of topics. It's really great. And yeah. I appreciate it, Randy. I meant more like if they're bugging my house, because you're like, why is he watching Bullet Train again for the hundredth time? <laughs> but uh, Randy, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Yeah, everything can be found at thesearchersfilm.com. I will link all those in the description and any other profiles that I might've linked in past episodes will also be in the description. Is there anything you want to say about an upcoming release for Searchers 2? Do we have a time yet or no? We don't have a time. I'm uh, currently collecting interviews and um, doing deep research. Maybe we can meet at the archives one of these days and um, road trip up there and spend some spend a weekend or or two up there i want to see everything uh, they're hiding that's all i'm saying yep 
that's what we need. But yeah, I'll uh, I'll let everyone know the, the the status of the film as soon as I know. Well, but thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm ready, man. I, I I want t-shirts. That's what I want. I want to get a giant poster of the searchers back there for my studio, but I'll link all your links in the description. Also a link to the searchers film where people can go rent it. Um, check out the film. It's really, really good. It's uh definitely if you're a JFK fan, I'd recommend it. It was one of the first things I saw um, besides Jim's film uh, that got me hooked in. And I think it does a great thing. If you have an interest in understanding more or more about the characters that are involved um, in researching um, the assassination, because a lot of them aren't here. Well, some of them aren't here, I should say, uh, mostly Mark Lane. But if you're you hear the name pop up in the case, you got to know who the person is before you can start using their material. Like Weisberg's a good example. I had to learn more about that guy, but I'm going to link all the links in the description. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.